0: Today is April 24th, 2020. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the socially distanced edition from, presented by the University of Texas, San Antonio's Neurosciences Institute. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So today we're going to be talking to Jacques Wadish, who's calling in from Birmingham, Alabama. Hi, Jacques. Hi, Salma. Jacques is... Associate Professor of Neurobiology at the UAB School of Medicine. His work gets at the fundamental mechanisms of synaptic transmission. Um, the lab combines acute brain slice recordings of neurons and glia to photon imaging and uncaging, as well as computational and molecular approaches to study synapses and circuits in cerebellum, hippocampus, and, and the midbrain. So, patched in to join the discussion are our own Matt Higgs. Hi, Matt.
1: Morning.
0: And Charlie Wilson. Hey, Charlie. Hi. How's everyone doing? Good? Good. Great. Great. Jacques, I thought we'd start off with some history. So since the 1950s, studies based on the quantal model for synaptic transmission had suggested that neurotransmitter release is mediated by a single release site and individual synapses in the nervous system. So in the last 25 years, a series of papers by you and others have contradicted this one vesicle, one release site hypothesis and established that multivesicular release at central synapses is is a general phenomenon that's integral to understanding some of the computational diversity of neuronal signaling. So there are decades of research in this question, but can you kind of distill some of the key moments in our progression toward understanding the process of transmitter release, which is so fundamental to every bit of information, coding, processing, and transmission in the nervous system?
2: I, I think, I mean, it starts obviously with a quantal uh, with a quantum hypothesis, and then the easiest way to sort of uh, understand um, release mechanisms is either when a vesicle is released or not released. So I think this is uh, how um, the initial assumptions were laid out for the binomial distribution and so forth. Um, and it kind of stood at that point. Uh, I think people sort of assumed that that was a, a reasonable a reasonable thing to, to sort of take in uh, until about the 1980s, really, I would say, when Henri Korn and uh, Don Faber um, started uh, recording and uh, from the Mautner cell, the goldfish, and correlating um, physiology. They were doing quantum analysis, really, and they're doing non stationary noise analysis with. Um, with the light microscopy, and they started seeing a one-to-one correlation between number of release sites and number of crossings, if you will, with uh, with the light microscopy, sort of suggesting that you, the number of release sites that you had functionally correlated to the number of crossings or put- putative synapses that you had, thereby giving you a sort of univesicular hypothesis or uh, sort of affirming this idea that only one vesicle could be released per release, per, per site. And so I think it stood that way for a while. Um, and then I would say around 1994 or, or so, the lab where I did my postdoc with Craig Jarre kind of challenged that idea in, in, um, in culture and showed that um, under certain circumstances – you could get the release of multiple vesicles per release site. And, um, and I think people kind of like that idea, uh, but they sort of uh, ascribed it to unusual, unusual uh, circumstances. In, in Craig's case with Gong Tong in 1994 paper, they had to increase release probability with, with uh, artificially by blocking potassium channels. A few years after that, there were some in the field that kind of questioned those, those, uh, those results because uh, we knew transmitter could spill from one site to another, therefore, therefore confounding some of the ways that Craig and, and, uh, and Gong um, interpreted their, their, uh, their data. And so fast forward to 2001, we, I had just finished my my graduate work. I kind of wanted to take a break from um, doing uh, glutamate transporter biophysics. I was always interested in synapse, and Craig and I sort of came up with this idea of of trying uh, to address this, readdress this question at a synapse that would not have the same confounds that he did in 1994, and we did some experiments that pointed towards multivesicular release. Fast forward a few more days, a few more years uh, after that, there were a number of papers that sort of uh, challenged the way and the mechanisms that we proposed that would uh, be behind this idea of multivesicular release. And uh, I've sort of been uh, focused and sort of infatuated with that question since since that time, and that's that's how we came up with this last paper this past year.
3: Hey, can I ask a question about the history stuff before we leave here? <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, wow. Was that a dog fight? <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's so, a very large dog. <laughs> so um, in the 70s, Heuser and Reese looking at neuromuscular junction were stimulating axons and then freezing the neuromuscular junction really rapidly so that they could only capture the release that happened with a single action potential. And then they were looking in freeze fracture at the synapses. And they saw multiple, not always, but they often sometimes saw and they documented multiple fusion events from a single action potential. Is um, What happened to that? I mean, was that a kind of discounted observation or why didn't that already persuade everybody that there could be multiple vesicles released?
2: Yeah, no, I, 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 you're you're absolutely right. That's a that's a key finding that I that I sort of glossed over. And I think one of the reasons I I, I did is one people were never sure whether that was exocytosis or endocytosis, right? So they uh, they couldn't really tell those two things apart because it's a static picture. And uh, and the Heuser and Reese uh, studies also did use the the blocking of potassium channels uh, to sort of increase increase the fusion uh, of, 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 of events so uh, it wasn't that it's not discounted but yeah that was that was actually uh, obviously a, a key finding
3: so uh, just to uh, bring in a little bit more structural stuff because I know we're not going to be talking much about structure but um, in their synapse there's this long kind of railroad track looking set of proteins that are involved in transmitter release, and the fusion events happen along that long strip, and that's quite a bit different from synapses in the brain that have kind of a patch of docking, possible docking locations the, in the presynaptic grid. And so uh, you could imagine that, that lo- on that long strip, the places that are kind of s- distant from each other on the scale of a vesicle diameter could be more or less independent. But the notion from Henri Korn's work was that the the grid was, uh, was this really cool geometrical thing that had a particular shape. And then when fusion happened, it distorted the shape of every other location on the grid so that a fusion event couldn't happen there or was less likely there. And I thought that was a super attractive explanation for things because it well it was it just flat out physics of fusion it could give you a reason
2: right uh, no i I think the inhibition the lateral inhibition of uh of vesicles that were released and then not released was an extremely attractive way of uh, going about this and chuck stevens sort of followed up on that work uh, and came up with this idea of so many milliseconds after release, you could not get another fusion event. I think it was something like seven milliseconds or something. Um, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it, it, this is this is a little bit part of the problem that I have with 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 some of this uh, some of this work. We try to approach it from a functional aspect, and there's also a physical morphological aspect I and mean, people start uh sort of blurring the line between the twos and it becomes uh more and more difficult to understand what we're talking about so obviously okay so,
3: so um, i'll quit i'll quit doing that except for no, one, no no one, no 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 i think, one, i think one more it's, time i think I
2: think, <laughs> it's, I think it's really instructive because sort of in the retina right it's uh-huh. as uh as you guys are aware these ribbon synapses people have said uh, this is the function of the ribbon uh but yet you can you can get rid of ribeye and you can still get uh, really <laughs> right. really good really good uh really good release so it's uh it's unclear exactly how the two things are sort of put together
3: uh, so the
2: morphology other, versus physiology
3: one other morphological issue I would raise before before uh, retiring morphology for the rest no of no the,
2: i we that, should we shouldn't do that
3: is that at some presynaptic boutons have more than one uh, active zone. And so, those are kind of special. I mean, it's not uncommon, actually, and and the postsynaptic site is the same for both active zones. So, sometimes we think of it as just an interrupted active zone. But there's going to be some degree of communication between those active zones, chemical and You know, uh, ionic uh, composition and everything is basically the same for those two active zones, but they are—they're really releasing. I mean, there's no way that the distortion of the presynaptic grid on one of them could affect the presynaptic grid of the other. So that you might—well, okay, maybe there is a way. There's no way I can think of right now that that would happen. But maybe you know a way that that would happen. So um, is—is—isn't that? Always a little bit of a problem because we think of those. If you're if you're just doing a quantal analysis to find out how many, you know, what n is or what p is, you say, oh, I don't worry about that. I'm just treating those as if they were two independent presynaptic boutons, but they're not really two independent presynaptic
2: boutons. Most most definitely, I think there are a lot of central synapses, especially that have this this problem um, in. Uh, Ca3 synapses, dentates or mossy fiber synapses, are are really well known for having this problem with problem uh, being shaped this way, where there's multiple multiple presynaptic uh, active zones to maybe a common postsynaptic density. The calyx of Held is another one that's uh, well studied and that has the same sort of morphology, and the same um, similar morphology. So, and this is why we sort of gravitated towards the climbing fiber to Purkinje cell uh, synapse because uh, years and years of work were done uh, at at those synapses to show, and they showed pretty unequivocally with EMs and later on EM reconstructions that there was only a single uh, active zone per single postsynaptic density, and each of those each of those pairs, if you will, were almost completely in sheet by glial membranes uh, uh, surrounding surrounding that, so that you could almost, almost, and <laughs> I say that uh, carefully, treat each one of those as a single single entity separate from from the other ones. We now know that that's probably all an, also an oversimplification, but um, it, it's definitely very different than it is at the neuromuscular junction and other synapses, but central synapses uh, have this caveat. So you you have to be careful um, whether there's a presynaptic way to inhibit vesicles from interacting or what you assay, what we usually assay is postsynaptic, whether those presynaptic elements that are neighboring one another can affect that same postsynaptic uh, set of receptors.
0: So to keep it on the presynaptic end of things, it's widely, been held, I guess, that release probability solely determines multivesicular release or release in general. But in, in your most recent paper, you show that there's a molecular mechanism that regulates the releasable vesicular pool at each active zone and that that actually controls the number of vesicles released independently of release probability. Can you say something about that study and comment on what it means to have vesicular availability and release probability independently regulated in the way that you measured it yeah
2: sure so it, it kind of goes back to that 94 paper that uh, going tong and current jar sort of pub- published and uh, published in and they kind of wanted to put an idea on why some synapses were showing multi release and why uh, some were not and um they came up with this idea that say a uh, one vesicle's release probability if it's high let's let's use the, the idea of 90 percent so we have a 90 percent chance of releasing that vesicle upon a, uh, an action potential that invades the terminal then the chances of seeing two vesicles at the same time would be the product of of those two uh, release probabilities so 81 percent in the case of a high probability synapse like the climbing fiber which is somewhere close to 90 percent for each one vesicle uh, whereas um, at other synapses, which have a much lower release probability, say in the hippocampus, which has something on the order of 20%, uh, some say, uh, release probability per vesicle, then the chances of seeing two vesicles would only be around 4%, uh, just from simple probability. Right? Um, so that was really the idea of how release probability dictated the propensity for multivesicular release or univesicular release. You'd have to find a, a synapse that was high probability to see multivesicular release, and you had to find a, a, a and, and, and synapses that had low release probability would see univesicular release. Now, um, that seemed to make sense, and all the experiments that we were doing sort of went along that way. And that was our hypothesis, release probability is directly proportional to multivesicular release or the release mode, if you will, um, until a few years after we published our paper, a couple a couple of uh, really nice studies, one from Jeff Isaacson with, with Gabe Murphy and another one uh, with Angus Silver and, uh, and Feldmayer and, and Bert Sackman, uh, one was in science, another one was in neuroscience, showed that you could have uh, high-release synapses showing univecicular release, sort of going against the hypothesis that we put forth. A number of years later, people showed that no PR synapses, even Craig Jar's lab with Jason Christie did that as well, and, and Carl Svoboda with Thomas Ortner showed that you can get no PR synapses that showed multivecicular release. So there were a few, more than a few, examples where this idea of release probability and the mode of release didn't go with this simple probability uh, idea that we had put forth back in 2001 and before that Craig had done that in 1994 and so, so that, that led us so that sorry that so that led us to, to sort of ask why
3: that happens
2: and, and we we had always wondered why that happened
3: so in this probability based idea that release release is, is um, of each vesicle is independent of the Others, so that isn't that right? So that if you have a That's right. point 0.1, the probability is point 0.1 of of a vesicle being released, and you have two available vesicles, then your un- vesicle release should look like it has a probability of point 0.2. And that, but it seems to me that uh, when you have low probability multivesicular release it must mean that they are not independent of each other that the two vesicles are somehow tied the probability is the probability of release of two and the probability of release of one doesn't exist
2: right so so then you start you start thinking about like when we're talking about release probability are you talking about release probability per vesicle or are you talking about release probability per synapse All right and every time that we, re, we really try to sort of limit our idea to the release probability per vesicle, because that's really what we're uh, interested in and really ultimately assay. And, you know, I should say that for the most part, we don't assay the release of a vesicle directly, right? We are always, we are always using a downstream effector to tell us what, how much transmitter is being released. And even then we don't really even know how much transmitter is being released. We have to use uh, numerical simulations to sort of guesstimate what the concentration is. So we can tell you what the concentration is for one vesicle or in conditions that we think are one vesicle. And then we sort of extrapolate back to the conditions that we think that are multiple vesicles. Um, So going back to your question, Yes, we, we want to just be thinking about the release probability of um, a single vesicle, because when you start thinking about the probability uh, of a whole synapse, then I think it matters not only the probability of the release of uh, that vesicle, but then also whether that vesicle is ready for uh, release, whether it's docked, and then it becomes really complicated. It's too much for me.
3: But if the... In, in a- Bhutan that is doing multivesicular release. If the individual quanta being released are not released independently of each other, then the whole binomial model is basically broken. I think because because it's right. It assumes that every release is independent of every other one. I I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean I think it's uh, there are some cases where you can
2: get um, these big fusion events in, in the retina. Peter Sterling has, has some nice work to show that you can get these compound fusion. Jeff Diamond also has come out and said possibly this could be happening in, in the retina where they also see multivecicular release, and there's some EM studies from Peter Sterling, like I said, that supports this idea of compound fusion, and that would violate the independent um, idea. Um, Whether there's cooperativity, I think that's that's sort of what you're getting at between vesicles. Um, Yeah, we don't we don't know. It's a it's a a very good question. Um, uh, For now, it seems like we can we can model everything as independent vesicles. giving us multivesicular release or univesicular release and i say this because that's just sort of the simplest uh simplest mechanism that we can think of uh, there, there could there could well be a co- some kind of a cooperative uh, molecule or cooperative uh, um, ensemble that that makes it so that multiple vesicles get released uh, more so at some synapses than other but uh, we, we don't need to invoke those kind of more complicated models to explain the data that
3: we've seen so far. So maybe it would be good to explain the data that you've seen so far.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds, sounds good. Yeah, so like I said, so we had uh, – it's, it's a little difficult in words, but uh, I'll, I'll give it without without figures, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. So we, we had seen this idea – Whereas uh, high PR synapses showed more transmitter release than a low PR synapse. Let's just use one synapse as an, as an example, um, independent of another synapse. And we're just looking at, uh, we're distilling down to the simplest simplest possible mechanisms. Um, and we thought this had to do with the release probability, as I, as I said earlier, right? And so along come these papers that say no, there must be something else because we have uh, these other situations where we can, or that rule, that hypothesis is violated. Okay, so you have to re- rethink your hypothesis, right? You have to reword your hypothesis to make a new one. And uh, for a long time, we were we were looking at um, what molecules could be, you know, in a synapse or or devoid from another synapse to explain these results, to explain the fact that we were getting multiple securities the way that we thought of it. And uh, these rules were being violated in other synapses or there were different rules at other synapses. Um, and so for a long time, we, we sort of um, looked for these molecules and there obviously there's a, whole host of molecules presynaptically that, that you know, Tom Sudoff and others have been cataloging for a number of years. And all of them um, could have been candidates. But I I, I remembered a, a paper by Paul Greengard and um, and I think Rodolfo Linus was on the paper in the 80s, uh, where they uh, injected um, I think they were injecting the active form of protein kinase A and they were actually potentiating release in in the in the squid, I think. And uh, I thought, huh, wouldn't wouldn't that be really nice? This and they, they thought that these the disinjection of protein kinase A, the active form of protein kinase A was acting on synapsin and synapsin was delivering vesicles to the active zone, docked vesicles, increased the number of docked vesicles and somehow gotten more release. So we thought, oh, wouldn't this be interesting if, if somehow you had molecules or you had mechanisms that uh, limited the number of available vesicles that were released per, per site, right? So you could have in, in sort of this way, you could have a high release probability synapse or high release probability vesicles, and you could still get univesicular release if you only had one vesicle available to release. Whereas in the same, in the same uh, way, you could have multiple vesicles available to to be released uh, if there were multiple vesicles uh, docked and ready to go. So you could have the same kind of vesicles giving you the same kind of situation giving you univesicular or multivesicular release. And on the flip side, you could have the same idea with univesicular release. It would still be dependent on the the release probability, but uh, more so uh, dependent on the number of vesicles ready to, to fuse. It's kind of a simple idea, but one that hadn't been tested. So that's what we set forth to test, So we went back to the climbing fiber, to Purkinje cell synapse, where we had characterized multidhesicular release and and univesicular release conditions really well through the years. And um, we first just pharmacologically tried to inhibit protein kinase A or stimulate protein kinase A and and see what happens. And and what we saw is we saw that when we... uh, increased or decreased uh, protein kinase A or cyclic AMP activity, either one, we could get uh, a decrease in the number of vesicles released. And we're always assaying the number of vesicles released uh, with a postsynaptic uh, assay of, of, uh, of uh, receptor size and, and blocked by a low affinity antagonist. We don't have to go into that detail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's kind of a cool yeah, no, it's, 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 it's an amazing assay and I'm, I'm not, I'm not responsible for coming up with it. Um, John Clemens, when he was a postdoc in, at the volume, was, was, uh, was, was key with that. And in any case, so, so we could, we could, uh, sort of regulate the amount of glutamate that was being released up or down without changing, uh, release probability. So, uh, just through, Regulating protein kinase A or cyclic AMP activity. Now that's a really dirty uh, sort of way to do it. We did all these experiments to control for postsynaptic changes, and we saw none.
0: Um, but Jacques, what you just described sounds like you've completely disproven the independence of the probability of release of each site, right? Yeah. Right.
2: So exactly. So
0: completely.
2: Yeah. Y- yes. Yes and no. Right. So. Uh, we've we've always said that release probability had something to do with it. And, it, and it does have something to do with it. But you have to have the number of vesicles there to 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 release. Otherwise, you you don't have enough vesicles <laughs> enough vesicles to give you multiple secure release. So we haven't I, I would say that we haven't really so much disproven as we sort of dissociated release probability. From uh, multivesicular release, it's still uh, I-, I would say you still you still it's still uh, sufficient, but maybe it's not
0: necessary. So how do you model this parameter, this undefinable parameter that defines the releasable pool? Is it part of the simulation now? Yeah. Oops. Jacques, you're frozen. Jacques, you there? Okay, let me see. But
3: first, I thought the question... Yeah, was not just,
0: ah, I, there. Oh, you back? I'm
3: back.
2: Okay. So what was your question again? Your question was uh, <laughs> can, can dissociating... I just, the, dissociating to,
3: yes, please. Charlie. I'll try rephrasing it because I, I love this question. I was thinking about it myself. So it, it's a practical question, I guess, in a way. If I'm just somebody studying unitary synaptic potentials and I want to measure the quadral structure of the unitary, I just try to get two numbers, N and P. N is the number of release sites, P is the probability of release. I know that there's some things wrong with the assumptions of that model probably, but that's the model I've got, so I can hope to get two numbers. And N is the number of vesicle release sites that are ready to go, In my usual way of thinking about this and P is the probability of release at any one of them. So if I did that experiment in the synapse that can do multivesicular release, what would I see? Would I see the multivesicular release getting incorporated into N, or would I see it incorporated into P, or would I see that the experiment just flat-out doesn't work? Uh (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh-oh. Is he really frozen?
3: Oh, then this question is freezing up teams. Anyway, okay, so N and P. It's
2: it's a, it's a really it's a really good question, and I'm really glad you asked it. So most every simulation or model that runs through and and has this uh, tries to assay the number of vesicles being released, or or even if you assay, assumes that this N, the number of sites that are there, are fully occupied by a by a vesicle. And that vesicle is release competent. That is an assumption that I haven't seen anyone sort of ask or challenge. And that's really where we put the, the, the new probability in our simulations in there. That, yeah, you can have a number of release sites that are there. But they, and, and they may even look morphologically like they're docked. But they may not be release competent. And that's where we think that the, that this synapse and protein kinase A sort of step may, uh, may sort of affect. That uh, the vesicle can, can get onto the release site, but it, it, something, has to, something has to occur for it to be release competent. And there it makes up the, the, the readily releasable pool. And then you can invoke P, to get your more or less vesicles. Does that answer your question?
3: Yeah, could I, uh, just as a practical matter, could I try to incorporate this into the binomial model by making n a stochastic variable and saying n has an average and a standard deviation? and Or is it Most not definitely. changing? A, uh-huh. Most definitely. Most definitely.
2: I mean, all, all it is is instead of just having that one probability um, down the line, um, that once the vesicle is, is is there, fuses, and then you have, you know, that goes with the fourth power of calcium and so forth, you have just something upstream that has a probability as well. And that, and and right now, the way we've simply, again, it's an oversimplification, we've just um, simplified it to, end being the stochastic processes, as you say, it can either, the vesicle is either docked or not docked or, the best schools re- release ready or not release ready is more uh, is probably uh, a better way of thinking about it because it's functional versus uh, morphological uh, difference. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. So in your treatment, like the PKA kind of re- treatments, then the um, the average of n is changing, and I'm I'm kind of wondering about the time course of of the fluctuation of available. Vesicles, so they fluctuate on a trial by trial basis, and uh, yes. Spending- so we, yeah, we we haven't we haven't addressed that
2: question specifically, but we would say that different synapses have different levels of okay, just for simplicity, PKA uh, activity or or synapse and phosphorylation activity, so that more or less vesicles. Uh, are available to release. So you have you have a couple different things, right? You have a couple different physical entities. You have the 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 docking sites, and that might be uh, something that's physically limited, right? So your your active zone might only be so big, so you might only have so many so many docking sites. Uh, but then you also have this other physical entity of the number of vesicles that can um, dock. To, to those sites, and we, we think those are that's, there's an overabundance of that. But then there's a probability of finding those vesicles to their docking sites, right? And so um, that could be activity-dependent, right? If uh, calcium regulates so sort of the activity of this molecule that we we came up on, synapse, which is uh, a well-studied molecule, but there could be other molecules that could be activity-dependent, um, limiting or uh, making available more vesicles to to uh, be released in the subsequent uh, sub- subsequent events. I mean, and, and the thing I like about this this uh, this idea and the, the way that we have put forth is that um, to the to to the Purkinje cell, for example, the, the Purkinje cell gets two excitatory inputs. One is a parallel fiber that's uh, always PIN characterizes a low release probability synapse, and the climbing fiber that, that we studied a lot. So we studied both of those synapses in this last paper, and um, one, and they were both thought to 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 have multivesicular release. And so how do you how do you come up with that? And, 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 and the and, and the cool thing about this is that both presynaptic terminals had an equal number of vesicles that looked docked to their active zones. And yet, one would show more or less release probability uh, and then would show different amounts of multi release. So how can you come up with a with, uh, different amount of release when release probability uh, is so different and... Um, it, yeah so, so so we we would say that there's the the activity the activity of PKA or synapsin at these two synapses is different and that's what's regulating the number of vesicles that are that have entered in the readily releasable pool and therefore giving you more or less uh, multi-vesicular release
1: it seems like the the readily releasable pool is a really key concept uh in the sort of statistical treatment of synaptic transmission now. So could you talk a little more about what that really means to define the readily releasable pool? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a, that's a,
2: <laughs> it, it's a, it's a really interesting, interesting points. People have been trying to define what that means in terms of morphology or in terms of function for a number of years now. Right. So the calyx people were trying to first uh, define the total number of vesicles that were available and they knew that those total number of vesicles would would somehow um, um, be involved in the readily reasonable pool and um, and recently more and more uh, studies have sort of come after to see you know if your molecule of choice affects the readily reasonable pool but i yeah we would we would definitely say that the readily releasable pool is a key component—the number of uh, vesicles you can release per synapse, given that you have enough release sites uh, at, the, at, at your at your synapse of choice.
1: So, so do you think that these are the vesicles you see anatomically lined up on the membrane?
2: Yeah. So, so uh, a lot of studies do say that that. That in fact is is the case. So there's a recent paper by Peter Jonas and his colleagues that do freeze fracture, uh, f- freeze, uh, flash freeze, EM slices even, and they do correlate the number of dock vesicles to the number of, um, to the number to, to the size of the of the responses, if you will. Okay, so they do correlate the the relatively visible pool to the the number of docked vesicles, so that that seems to work. Work. I don't know if that's going to be the case for every single synapse, but uh, it certainly would be would be uh, uh, would be interesting to have that.
0: So there's also this interesting um, idea of synchronized versus desynchronized release, right? Even as you have them lined up, that there are other factors that then govern some sort of temporal effect of what is released when, and that shapes synaptic response, right? What are the ideas about that? And has that actually been yeah. observed or is that a, or is that an idea at this point?
2: I mean, that, that kind of even gets even more esoteric
0: about, uh, about
2: uh, how you think about release. So first you have to, first you have to agree that there's a probability that you're going to have multiverse release at this synapse. Uh, if we're talking about desynchronization of multiverse release, and then you have to, Sort of study how desynchronized uh, release occur. Uh, obviously, uh, asynchronous release happens all over the central nervous system and and, and beyond. Um, uh, but whether it happens relative to to multivesicular release is something that we we studied a number of years ago, and um, we we think it does affect. Uh, sort of the output of the cell is physiologically important and so forth. Um, but we we sort of we tackled that problem only because we saw that asynchronous release was important at different at different synapses and we thought, well why not could it be important at a single synapse that that releases multiple vesicles.
3: So if a if a synapse uh, if there's that Active zone that releases two vesicles, will minis generated at that active zone also be two vesicles in size? That is those are really asynchronous releasing right, there's no action potential at all.
2: Right. So um, you're asking if, if the quanta is not a quanta, is a is a multiple of quantas? Well I mean if
3: the two if the if the, if there were two I don't really understand how minis happen, <laughs> like, well, I don't yeah. ever get released, <laughs> and, so, I and I don't know, I don't know anybody if anybody does, but uh, but if, if the release, if there were two ab- available vesicles, and then whatever happens that causes a mini, and the two vesicles were independent of each other, then probably minis would always just be one vesicle, but if the two vesicles were very uh, connected and coupled to each other, then many would sometimes be two vesicles in size. You would,
2: yeah, you would think so, right? I, so there's, there's a nice paper by uh, Isabel Lano and colleagues on uh, inhibitory synapses, now also in the cerebellum, that talks about maxi-minis. These are, these, these are minis that could be nanoamps in size. Uh, so she, so she has, thinks and that, that uh, maxi-minis uh, and multibesicularis are happening even at the, quote, quantum level. But it's not really true quantum level at that point, right? Because it's uh, multiple minis. I mean, I should say that you know, Isabelano and LMRT, uh were also uh, big proponents of multiphasic release inhibitory synapses around the same time that, uh, that that
3: the groups that I mentioned before were interested in excitatory synapses. Matt and I are seeing maxi minis every day in our experiment, and so. It's the sort of thing that's on my mind. What? How big are the maxi minis? Well, for we don't have, uh, you know, our cells are dendritic, and so uh, sure. when things get really big, we can't be sure how big they are. But they look to us to be like two or three nanoamps in size.
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's well, that's exciting. Yeah. That could that could uh, that could very well be. I think I think
1: uh, it's definitely more than possible. <laughs> I think. Kind of an overriding question that I have about a lot of this stuff is that we think of uh, synaptic transmission as a stochastic process, and uh, a lot of these questions seem to come down to what are the real underlying uh, stochastic processes that uh, drive release. Depending on on what they are, you might couple the release of multiple vesicles or not. I, I mean, I think I think you're
2: you're you're very right I, and I think that's the one thing that this last paper that we published in eLife sort of adds is that we have a, a stochastic process upstream of release probability that's the docking of vesicles to to, uh, to sites um, and that lets us uh, explain our data as well as some of the other data that's coming to pass but yeah it's uh, absolutely uh, you could, you could probably add a lot of stochastic processes up upstream, downstream, and make it more and more complicated. I,
3: I know we're going to run out of time, and I don't want to uh, run out of time without asking you about uh, what the unreliability of synapses and all the interesting stuff we're learning about unreliability of synaptic transmission uh, means for the information transfer in neurons. How much of this is... Uh, Bug and how much is a feature of synaptic transmission? To, do you want to share some thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I grew up in the in the in the camp that postsynaptic uh, changes were the way to amplify or or decrease uh, sort of information transfer, right? The postsynaptic camp of LTP, LTD, and that kind of thing. But but this idea that you can regulate the number of vesicles released. Per synapse, in in, in, a, in a release probably independent manner, adds adds another layer that you could um, get a presynaptic increase in the sort of bandwidth of information, right? Because you, that same synapse with the same set of receptors on the postsynaptic side, now if you if you release one vesicle versus three to five vesicles per site, you you get a synapse that goes from being very unreliable to a synapse that's that's uh, uh, sure fire. and then and then if you if you add the 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 desynchronized way in which those vesicles could be released at those single sites, you add the even another layer of complexity to it. Yeah, so it's it's uh, <laughs> it's an interesting way to think about plasticity because now you're now you're thinking about it on the presynaptic side of things without uh, worrying about receptor distribution or receptor insertion or removal.
0: So how labile are these mechanisms that would control PKA? Uh, this PKA switch almost, if you want to reduce it to that level of simplicity.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, I, we wouldn't just say it's just PKA. I think any, any molecule or any mechanism that could control the delivery of vesicles would influence the the sort of phenomenon that we're describing as far as activity dependent as far as label yeah I, that's up for grabs right it, we know that pKA is can be localized to different parts of the synapse through proteins like a caps uh, we know that calcium is tightly regulated so calcium could could influence other kinases like cam kinase 2 that also affects the, the number of vesicles that can go from the reserve pool to the relevant visible pool um, uh, and then there are other mechanisms that that don't even need uh, certain certain molecules this, there's a new thing by Pietro, Pietro de Camilli not new anymore but this idea of phase separation where vesicles can sort of aggregate in different pools and be delivered or not delivered to the relevant visible pool in that way Uh, And that could happen, Um, that could be regulated in, I I suppose, in in many different ways. That's a wide open question on how labile it is.
3: I think everything is clear except the whole business of uh, stochastic transmitter (laughs) is not clear. I mean, imagine I was designing an electronic device that consisted of a bunch of switches and every time you... one of the switches through, then there was a one in five chance that current would flow through it. And if I built a machine like that, I expected it to do computation, it wouldn't. It would be just a terrible mess. Imagine my house. I wired my house. So every time I throw the light switch on, I've got a one in 10 chance that the light would turn on. Now, the brain somehow is a house wired with switches like that does that make sense I don't know you tell me <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's why that's why I try to study synapses and not the brain um, <laughs> I, that's a little i, I don't want to think I don't want to you know I, I already feel like I'm out of my out of my comfort zone out of one molecule uh, I think of well, synapses.
3: We should all feel a little out of our comfort zone with this stochastic <laughs> transmitter release. You know, I, every time I, I show it to somebody new, some student or something, they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, you, 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 you think that the brain could possibly work like that? I so, well, yeah. I know that's how synapses work, but, but I can't uh, make much sense out of how a brain would work if it was wired like that. Well, I mean, I think
2: doesn't it make sense? This this, this is why um, a lot of the studies that, that talk about connectivity between one region and another, you can you can get all kinds of results because things can happen. Doesn't mean that things do happen, right? And your brain is is, is wired to possibly do things, right. but not necessarily to do them.
0: Our house doesn't need to learn. You know, we want it to be sort of a stagnant system, right, that does what we want it to do at all times, right? I mean, doesn't yeah. this lot a certain amount of flexibility to the... If I make all the switches
3: in my house stochastic, it's not going to start learning. that doesn't make <laughs> me a smart house. I, I hope
2: you're smarter than your house.
0: <laughs> so, Jacques, this has been excellent. Thank you for joining us in this uh, first run of our, of our uh, social distance podcast. And uh, I hope our listeners can manage. I think it went pretty well, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Could hear yeah, Matt, it sounds like you got a leaf blower going on in the background.
0: Yeah, thank oh, you so much. Sorry for about
2: reading. the leaf blower. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing it. Sorry about the dog and the uh, spurious noises in the